We uh, have been talking for the last couple weeks in this series about one another's. We've talked about two very important aspects of one anothering that we're supposed to be doing as a church body, loving one another as Christ loved us, and forgiving one another as God through Christ forgave us. Two really hard things, right? Really hard things, but absolutely necessary and essential things which God gives us the power to do and to walk in. We now are going to turn our attention to a couple of things Christians should not do to one another, things to avoid doing to one another. This week and next week, we'll be looking at those two things. And the first thing that we want to look at that we are not to do is that we are not to provoke or envy one another. Don't provoke or envy one another. That's what our focus is going to be today. And this can be just as challenging as the other things we've considered, just as hard, just as difficult, just as foreign to us, naturally speaking, as loving one another and as forgiving one another, just as difficult. The reason is because it's as old as Cain and Abel, literally. That's where it started, the envying, the provoking, the the conceit. The stirring one another up and causing provocation and conflict started with them, and and it went on from there. Uh, I mean, all through the pages of the early narrative in Scripture, we see this. Jacob and Esau, Rachel and Leah, Joseph and his brothers, on and on I could go. My point is, provoking one another, envying one another, which comes from conceit, self-conceit, which we'll see in just a a few minutes as we dive into this. It's in our very DNA, folks. It's in our DNA. This is ingrained, not just in, in our own personal being, but it's ingrained in our entire culture. It saturates our society. Being conceited, which then leads to conflict with one another and envying one another and all that comes from that. It's in our very DNA. Humanly speaking, that's why it's so hard not to do this. That's why it's so contrary to our nature. But the thing we need to remember is, while that may be contrary to our human nature, it is also contrary to our supernatural nature, which we've been given through Christ. And that's why we have to, all of us who are in Christ, that's why we have to strive against doing this. That's why we have to strive not to be conceited, not to provoke one another, not to envy one another. With that being said, let's jump in together to Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to be zeroing in on verses 25 and 26. Galatians 5, 25 and 26. And while you're turning there or getting there on your screen, however you're going to look at God's Word together today, as you're doing that, let me just mention this, that the context of these verses... Galatians 5, 25 and 26, can be found by looking at verses 19 through 24, which is the contrast between the characteristics of the flesh, our sinful nature, and the fruit of the Spirit. That's where you find that, where Paul says the works of the flesh, the acts of the flesh, they're obvious, they're evident. 
you don't have to look very far for those. And he lists those. And then he contrasts that with the fruit of the Spirit. Then, down in verse 25, it's really a summary of all of that. These two verses, it's the conclusion. It's Paul wrapping things up and he's saying, we've talked about what the works of the flesh are. We've contrasted that with the fruit of the Spirit. Now, in light of that, here's what I want to leave you with on this thought. So with that being said, verse 25, let's look at that together. Galatians 5, 25. The Word of God says this, if, and really that is better translated since, it's not if like... I. If this is a possibility, he's, he's speaking to the church. He's speaking to those that are in Christ. So it's since is a better translation there. Since we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That, that phrase, keep in step, that's literally walk in line with. Think of like a military march. Think of soldiers who are supposed to be keeping in rhythm and in step with their leader that's leading them on this march, keeping in step with, in time with. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So Paul is saying, since, since this is true of you, because you're in Christ, you're, you're alive in the Spirit, you've been made alive by the Spirit of God. Galatians 2.20 talks about that. Paul says, for everyone that comes to Christ... We are united with Christ in His death. We are crucified with Christ. And we, the the me we used to be, no longer lives. And the life I live, Paul says, and this is true of you too if you're in Christ, the life that I live, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So if you've been someone who comes to Christ, you've been made new by Christ, you're in Him, you are alive by the Spirit of God. The Spirit gives you supernatural life. Isn't that good news for you today? That you don't have to live this life in your own limited ability. You've been made alive by the very Spirit of God. And so Paul says, that's true of you. And since that's true of you, here's the natural conclusion. Walk by the Spirit. You're already being made alive by Him. Now walk by Him. Walk in step with Him. Let Him direct your steps. Let Him direct your life. Let Him empower every moment that you live. Follow Him in every area of your life, keeping in rhythm with Him. That's the idea that Paul is conveying here. Then he says this, and this really is connected, even though it doesn't sound like it. So bear with me here and bear with the Word. Verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another. That word provoking, the word Paul used here, was the same word for what describes what happened when athletes in the time used to compete with short, blunt swords. They would jab and they would poke at one another. Think of uh, gladiators, but without the actual metal swords. This was a competition. It was games. Think of the Olympics. And so they would have these short, blunt swords, and they would just kind of poke and jab at each other. That's the word he used here. Another idea that is expressed in his word choice here would be stirring something up. Think of stirring up bees in a nest. We don't want to do that. And if you've ever done that, you know how bad that can be. Uh, especially a few months ago, in the midst of summer as you were mowing. I know Matthew had that experience. He had that encounter, the unfortunate encounter with stinging insects. 
And uh, it's not fun. It's not pleasant. He stirred up that nest, and they didn't like it too much. That's the idea here that you could also attach to this word provoking. So don't jab and poke one another. Don't stir up in a negative way one another, envying one another. That word envying is referenced in verses 20 and 21 as part of that list of the acts of the flesh that Paul talked about. So here's what he's saying. Paul's saying, those of you who've been made alive by the Spirit, since that's true of us, let's keep in step, let's keep in unison with the Spirit, letting Him direct our lives, but let's make sure that as we do that, and as that's true of us, that we don't become conceited in that. You're following me? So I've been made alive by Christ. I've been made alive by the Spirit. The Spirit is giving me life. I know that. I'm now keeping in time and in step and in march with the Spirit's leading. But here's the danger in that. That that very good thing can actually be a source of conceit on my part and on your part. That thing that we are to do, being led by the Spirit, following Him, being more and more and more alive by Him, can actually result, because this is how bent and broken we are as humans, can result in arrogance, in conceit. And then it can be a source of conflict with one another. If you were Satan, now, I did not say you are Satan, okay? Didn't say that. Don't go, don't go out of here. And when someone asks, hey, what was your message about Sunday? Well, my pastor called me Satan. No, I did not. And you probably weren't expecting for me to even say it that way, if you were Satan. Hopefully that woke some of you up, that maybe we're already starting to drift. If you were Satan, and you knew that you couldn't rob Christians of their salvation, I mean, you can't do that, you know that, You can't take away their salvation. You can't take away their relationship with Christ. You can't take away their standing before God through Christ. You can't take away the Spirit that's giving them life, like we just read. Okay, Since you've been made alive by the Spirit, since we live by the Spirit, right? if you're Satan, you know you can't take that away. So what would you do to affect the Christians as they seek to live in step with the Spirit? Wouldn't it be brilliant if what you did was to take the very thing that God gives them, His supernatural power, His life, and the very thing they're supposed to do which will glorify and honor Him, which is keeping in step with the Spirit, wouldn't it be a masterful stroke of strategy to take that very thing and use it as a weapon to puff them up? To cause them pride. To let them be proud in the fact that they are walking so well with the Spirit. To cause them to have vain glory, self-conceit, at how close they are to the Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that just be brilliant? And my friends, that is exactly what our enemy does. All the time. He takes what is true of us, We've been made alive through Christ by the Spirit of God since we live by the Spirit, Galatians 5.25. 
and he takes what we're supposed to do, living by that Spirit, continually keeping in step with him, letting him direct the course of our lives, letting him rule us, uh, following his lead more and more as we go. He takes all of that and he whispers in our ear and in our minds and our hearts, you're doing so good. Look at how good you're doing this Christian life. Look at how closely you're walking with the Spirit. Look how, man, look how far you've come. And then, along with that, he says, hey, look over there. That's what we do. We look around and we see our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And we see all the other people around us. And he says, man, isn't it good that you're not like them? Aren't you glad you're not them? Man, wouldn't it be awful to, to be so weak and immature like, like they are? Aren't you glad that you're so much stronger and better than they are in your walk? Look at how much more you know. Look at how much more you're able to do. And so slowly and surely and very subtly without us even knowing it, what wells up within us is pride and arrogance and conceit. And it just fills up and it fills up and it fills up more and more and more. The more we let that go unchecked, the more we are oblivious to it, the more we don't realize it, the more we don't deal with it, it just fills up like a cup, higher and higher and higher. So, my question with that for all of us is what's in your cup? What's in your cup? Is humility? Is recognizing that everything that marks your life as a Christian is not because you're just that good, but it's by grace? It's by the grace of God at work in your life? And apart from the grace of God? And apart from the dominance of the Spirit of God, we would not have anything good at all in us? Are you realizing that? Is that what's in your cup? Is the cup of your Christianity full of humility? Or is what's in your cup slowly and surely becoming more and more conceit, arrogance, vainglory? See, the attitude of the conceited Christian, and I say conceited Christian because I think we understand generally what conceit is is and what a conceited person is and we know that we don't like conceited people and we also need to understand they don't like us when we are conceited so we understand i think pretty well what it means just generally to be conceited but i want us to talk specifically and to understand specifically about what a conceited christian is and by the way that's an oxymoron really is they don't go together at all the attitude of the conceited christian is this So this is time for some self-evaluation, all right? Listen to this, self-evaluation time. Invite the Spirit of God in to your thinking right now and ask Him to reveal, is this me? Do I resemble this, okay? Here's the attitude of the conceited Christian. I think I'm more right than you are. None of this, by the way, we ever say out loud. But we might as well. Might as well, because it's, it's just as real in our own head and in our heart, unfortunately, many times. I think I'm more right than you are. 
I think I'm right, you're wrong, and I think that happens most of the time. That's the attitude of the conceited Christian. Also, another branch of that attitude is, I think I'm closer to God than you are. I think I'm closer to God than you are. Oh, how, how pitiful you are if you could only be like me. I know him better and I'm more like him than you are. If the attitude of the conceited Christian would be put to song, it would, you know, the, the great hymn, How Great Thou Art, it would be, How great I am, how bad you are. That would be the song of the conceited Christian. And unfortunately, we, we sing that far too often. And these attitudes, ironically, actually prove that the exact opposite is true of us. When we have these thoughts, it proves that the exact opposite is actually marking our lives and true of us. If we think that we are more right than anybody else, if we think that we're closer to God than anybody else is, if we think we know him better and are like him more than anybody else, then it proves we actually have much farther to go. We're actually a lot less like Jesus than we thought. We're actually a lot less controlled by the Spirit of God than we might have fooled ourselves into thinking. So be careful. Be careful. Be careful about what's in your cup. Because whatever the cup of our heart and our mind is full of, listen, it will inevitably spill out and overflow to others. Inevitably. Whatever the cup of our heart and our mind is full of, it will inevitably spill out and overflow to others. So if conceit is going into my cup and your cup, if we're allowing the enemy to tempt us and entice us and build up conceit in us, if that's going into the cup of our life and our Christianity, then it will overflow, it will spill out, and it will result in, yep, conflict or provoking one another. And that also then results in envying one another. It's what happens every time. And this Christian, this right here, this is the source of almost all of our conflicts with one another. It really is. That's why Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, made sure to focus on this after contrasting the work and acts of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit, he wanted to make sure to qualify all that by saying, now as you demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, as you have the fruit of the Spirit on display in your life, as you're walking in the Spirit, be careful. Don't get conceited about that. Because if you do, if you do become conceited, it will lead to conflict. It'll lead to provoking one another. It'll lead to all sorts of envying amongst yourselves. That's what happens. You see, when conceit comes out, when it spills out of our lives and it comes out into our relationships with one another, when that happens, it of course provokes and stirs up conflict. Who do you think you are is what that results in. Who do they think they are? My goodness, how arrogant they are. Who do they think they are? Why do they think they are so much closer to the Lord than I am? What, what happened to, to convince them that I am just so far beneath them? 
and it starts causing resentment and bitterness. And then it also leads to insecurity and envy. Insecurity and envy as you look at that person that is so inflated and so conceited. Here's an unknown quote about envy that I really liked. Whoever penned this said, Envy is the art of counting the other fellow's blessings instead of your own. Envy is the art of counting the other fellow's blessings instead of your own. So, you know, you start looking at all that they have going on in their life, all that they have going right, at least as you perceive it, all the blessings they have, and instead of counting all your own blessings and being thankful for what you have and and seeing all that God has given you and all that God has done for you, you ignore that and you're just focused in on all that you see God doing for them. And that causes you not only to be bitter and resentful toward them, but ultimately toward God. Envy is full of bitterness and resentment. Why are they able to go there and do that? Why can't I? Why can they have that? Why them? Why not me? And then that translates to God Why are you withholding your blessing from me? Why don't you favor me as much as them? God, why are you? Why don't you? You see the progression there? This is how dangerous all of this is. It's a good thing that we uh, pastors never have that issue. Insert winking emoji. Yeah, you know, because we never look around at other churches that appear to be really thriving and growing, and we never struggle with that bitterness and envy and resentment, right? We never talk about that together. Never. I'm going to move out of the way as the lightning comes down to strike me. No, of course, obviously, we are all susceptible, aren't we? We're all susceptible to this problem, this problem of conceit and this problem of of envy, We're all susceptible to this at various times and to various degrees. All of us, despite the fact that we often think that our problems are outside of ourselves and we often think our problems are with those people, you know, we often think people are our problem, other people are our problem, and the problems are outside of us, but all of us need to come to grips with this truth that to the contrary, most of our problems are in us. Not all of our problems, but most of our problems are in us. And they can only be truly dealt with by the Spirit of God. Augustine used to often pray, it's recorded, that Augustine used to often pray, Lord, Deliver me from that evil man, myself. That's a good prayer to pray, I think. Lord, deliver me from that evil man, myself. All right, so we've talked about the problem at length, the problem of conceit, which leads to conflict or provoking one another, and which also then leads to envy, and it just keeps going in this vicious cycle. We've talked about that. Now, let's look at the solution. Go from problem 
over to the solution. And thankfully, by God's grace, he's so good, he gives us the solution. Aren't you glad that God doesn't just point out the problem, that he gives you the solution and how to address it? It's what he does in his word, page after page after page. He, he shines the mirror up to our lives and says, this is not good, this is true of you, and it needs to be fixed. And by the way, here's how to fix it. He's so good. Let's look at that together. Here's the solution. And it starts by remembering two very important things. Okay, Two very important things uh, we can take and use as the remedy and the solution for this problem. This problem of conceit and then the provoking one another and the envying that comes from that. First, here's the first thing that we need to remember that addresses this issue and that puts us on guard against it. God is the only one that is always right and always good. God is the only one that is always right and always good. And that, that truth, I mean, that should deflate our inflated heads and egos, shouldn't it? Knowing that, that God's the only one, I mean, that frees us all up from laying a false claim to being always right and always good. He's the only one that can claim that. He's the only one that is. Here's what Romans 12.3 says uh, in connection with that. Romans 12.3. The Apostle Paul writes, For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. I mean, that says it all right there. Don't think more highly of yourself than you should. Instead, think sensibly. Think realistically. Think reasonably as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. In other words, look into God's Word. See what it says about you. See what God has said about you. Let that be what you take away. Don't don't have an inflated view of yourself. Have an accurate view of yourself, which is this. Apart from God, I am nothing. And God alone, God alone is the one that's always right and always good. Second thing we need to remember, and this serves as, again, that guard against being conceited in our own Christianity, which then leads to conflict with one another, provoking one another, and envying one another. Guards against all that. Second thing, God should define our identity and drive what we pursue. God should define our identity, who and what we are, and drive what we pursue, what we go after, what we look for, what we search for. Here's what Jeremiah 9.23-24 says. Jeremiah 9.23-24, this is what the Lord says. The wise person, so we all want to be wise, we want to be wise people, right? So this is what the wise person should do, or should not do. Look, the wise person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy should not boast in his wealth. So, 
Don't let those things be what we hold up and hold on to and wave as a big flag for everybody to see and draw all of our attention to. And don't let those things define us at the core of our identity. That's what Jeremiah and the Holy Spirit through him is saying. Are you wise? Has God given you wisdom? Don't boast in your wisdom. Don't let that become a source of conceit. Don't let that become a source of arrogance. Are you strong? You have strength in various ways in your life? Great, but don't boast in that. Don't let that become a source of conceit. Don't let that become a source of arrogance. Has God blessed you with wealth? Wonderful, but don't glory in your wealth. Don't let that be what you hold up and is allowed to become a source of conceit or arrogance. And in all of these things, this could all go away. That's another reason not to boast in them. The wisdom that you have could start to fade. Some of you can say, yes, I resemble that, right? I think we all can. The strength that you might have could leave you tomorrow. The wealth, we know how fleeting that is. Just look at our inflation rates. So, not only is it not spiritually or morally right to boast in any of those things, it just doesn't make any sense, practically. So, the Lord says here, the truly wise should not boast in His wisdom. Those that are really strong should not boast in their own strength. Rather, should boast in the strength of God. The wealthy should not boast in His wealth. So, there's the first part of this, the principle, the concept. And here is, in contrast, what we should boast in. Verse 24. But the one who boasts, and this all, by the way, goes back to what I just said as that second important thing to remember, that God should define our identity, that He should drive what we pursue. All of this is connected to that. Verse 24 of Jeremiah 9 says this, But the one who boasts should boast in this. Here's something that we should boast in. Here's a good thing to boast in that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. So there in verse 24, Jeremiah 9, 24, he says, I am the Lord, I'm showing faithful love, I show justice, I show righteousness. And this church... This Christian is what we should also show as we understand and know God more and more. As we know Him and and understand Him more, as we walk with Him more and more, just as faithful love and justice and righteousness marks God, as it defines God, as it describes God, it should mark and define and describe us more and more and more. The closer we are to Him, the more we walk with Him, the more this should be true of us. And we should not boast in anything in our lives or in this life around us on earth other than the fact that we come to understand and know God. Let us be grateful for that. Let us glory in that, that by God's grace, He's given us the ability to understand and to know Him and to know His attributes and His characteristics. 
And if we truly are understanding that, that will be seen in us as well. I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. So, this is what I leave you with. It's a question I asked earlier. What's in your cup? In light of all of this that we've talked about, what's in your cup? Is it faithful love and justice and righteousness, which, by the way, will also be full of humility because we'll have to recognize and understand that that doesn't come from yourself, that only comes from God and His grace, and as you come to know Him more, He gives you more of Himself? Or is it vainglory? Is it self-conceit? What's in your cup? Be mindful of that. Be aware of that. Remember, God is the only one that is always right and always good. And remember that He, God alone, should define our identity. Nothing else should define our identity. He should define our identity, who and what He is. And He should drive what we pursue. Let's pray to this end together as we wrap up. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how alive and active and powerful and relevant and needed it is. I pray that you would take this portion of your word that we've looked at together, that we've considered together, and by your Spirit, Please apply personally what we need to come away with, what we need to take and apply to our minds, our hearts, our lives. Please be at work in us. Be at work through us. May what overflows from the cup of our lives not be conflict or provoking one another. May it not be jealousy and envy and bitterness and resentment. Rather, may what overflows from our lives be everything that you are. May the overflow of our lives look like you and point other people to you, I pray. And I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.